Incoming transmission. You're listening to the Center Seat After Show, hosted by Brian Volkweiss, Mary Jo Tenuto, and John Tenuto. All drive systems and plasma relays are standing by. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Center Seat After Show. I am here with my usual awesome co-hosts, Mary Jo and John Tenuto, but today's awesome guest is David Livingston. David directed 62 episodes across four series, uh, making you the most prolific director in Star Trek history. Where is, what's the famous saying? Where is Dr. Livingston? Dr. Livingston, I presume. Yes, that's it. That's it. But he had an E on the end of his name and he was also insane. Okay. So you're sane and you don't have an E. So we're already. Not necessarily both of those. All right. All right. So we got it. We got, we got the right, we got the right Livingston here. Correct. So thank you for joining us. We're very honored. And I mean, it really is an honor to be speaking to you and, and doing the very, it's, it's more than an honor. It's, it's bizarrely surreal. Well, but anyway, so we're going to talk a little Star Trek. We're going to talk a little Deep Space Nine. We're going to talk a lot Deep Space Nine. But, you know, what I always like to start with is, it's so funny. I ask everybody this. Some people answer immediately. Some people are like, that's the stupidest, weirdest, dumbest question I ever heard. So we'll see how you do. There was a morning where you woke up and that morning you had never had a direct relationship with Star Trek. And when you went to bed that night, you did have a direct relationship with Star Trek that would continue. But it all started with a phone call or a meeting or something. Tell us about the beginning of your relationship with Star Trek. I don't mean as a viewer. You working on Star Trek, creating Star Trek. What was the beginning? Uh, in 1986, I was working at uh, a now defunct company called ABC Circle Films. And I was a production manager on TV movies for them. They got uh, uh, Sally Young, who was the production executive, uh, got a phone call from Paramount from Michael Schoenbrunn who was the head of television production. And he was looking for a production manager for the pilot for Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, they, it wasn't even called The Next Generation at that, that point because they hadn't decided uh, what they were gonna call it. And uh, he asked Sally if she knew of anybody and she recommended me. I went over and interviewed with Michael and in 19, beginning of 1987, I uh, went into a trailer on the back lot at uh, Paramount and. Uh, was the production manager on the pilot. So how much time between you starting and cameras rolling on Encounter at Farpoint? Uh, it was about five months. I believe we started shooting in July. I don't remember the exact date, um, but uh, I, I was in the trailer by myself for a month or so. And finally I got a production secretary and eventually uh, Rick and Bob Justman, who were the, uh, uh, co-supervising producers at the time uh, moved into the trailer. So it, it, took a, it took a while to get everybody uh, 
to get everybody over to the trailer. So let me ask you this, and I know this could be tough, but I want to ask you a question just as a witness. The business model that Next Generation followed was borderline unprecedented. It was a show that had been off the air for 20 years. There were three movies out at that point, right? About four. There were four movies Mm -hmm. out at that point. I guess what I'm getting at, I mean, of course, in your own words, please describe what you saw and you felt, but was there any part of you that was like, what are we doing? Like, how, what do you mean we don't have a network? Like, what do you mean we have a bald captain? Like, what's going through your head watching this come to life? Well, my most vivid memory when I first started was Herman Zimmerman taking me around to the three stages that we were going to have. And I was blown away because I had never been involved in a television production with so much production value. It was huge and enormous. Uh, and, and then I heard that the show was going to be syndicated. And I, I guess I didn't know at that point what genius it was, but it certainly was because it, it was a new paradigm. And from my position as a production manager, and then when I became a producer, it was mana from heaven. I'd got, I died and gone to heaven because no studio. I mean, it's still the studio, but they let us alone. And the best thing of all, no network, no network notes. We shot what we wanted to do. We spent the money that we needed to spend. Uh, So it was an unbelievable gift for me from the production side to be in that kind of atmosphere. Let me ask you this. You know, one of the ways that I pitched the show originally was Gene and Lucille turn the lights on. Berman turn the lights off. Talk about walking onto those sets for the first time. During the set building process, I know we had a lot of uh, back and forth about what the set should be. I remember one uh, uh, weekend where we were all called in to talk about the paint job uh, on a particular set and the arguments that we had. And being the production that point, manager at that point, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought we were getting so granular and so silly about things. Just let the production designer do his job. Uh, there was an, a tremendous amount of micromanaging, which uh, I didn't think was necessary. I don't know if that answers your question, but... It does. Okay. It absolutely does. Can I interrupt just a second? Hi. Earlier, you mentioned um, Bob Justman, and I was just hoping you could share a few memories. Bob Justman was a sweetheart. He, uh, as you guys all know, uh, was involved with the original uh, Star Trek, and Gene wanted him to pass the baton. And he was delightful. He would send out these weekly memos with uh, a bunch of uh, humorous anecdotes or little sayings and stuff. He didn't have a lot of involvement, but he was actually the person who first interviewed me and got me the job. So I'm forever grateful, uh, grateful to him. Thank you. You're welcome. Gene Roddenberry, half the time you hear people like, oh, he's the great bird of the galaxy. I've been a fan for 40 years. I don't know what the hell that means. What, again, I'm asking you as a witness. I never met him. I never saw him. What was he like as a human being? Uh, I had very little involvement with Gene. I probably met him once when I first got the job. 
<laughs> my only interaction with Gene on the entire time that he was involved in the show was a blistering phone call from him where the phone literally melted in my hand because his son, Rod, who was a minor, wanted to be a PA during the summer break. And I opened my big mouth and said, well, he can't be on the lot unless he has a work permit. And Gene called me and said, how dare you tell my son what he has to do? He can do anything he wants. I'm Gene Roddenberry, the whole, the whole thing. And I, I was in my office literally shaking. Uh, so that, that's my only, that was my only act, react, uh, interaction with Gene. I was below the line. I was the production manager. No need to interact with him at that point. He's not on set a couple times a week even? I, I have very little recollection of ever seeing him. So it's funny, if you were talking about season three or season four, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Tenudos, are you surprised or am I an idiot forgetting again what a bullion is? No. That was a prior episode. No, no, that's a, I mean, that's a very, it's, it is interesting because you, the the narrative, I think that we all are sort of told or or have been led to believe is that Gene was very involved in the first, say, two years and then uh, it, the illness kind of, you know, Ill, illness plus other factors. But um, uh, that's fascinating to know, to learn that it's, it's not quite that way. We had a Christmas party uh, in the first season in 87. And at that party, Gene passed the baton to Rick. And from then on, it was Rick's show as far as, as, far as I know. Now, again, behind, uh, below the line, not, not in the room, but... That was my impression. Were you at the party? Yes. Can you tell, just tell us what you saw? How did he pass the baton? Gene said, this is the, this is the guy. This is my, we are simpatico. And they were incredibly simpatico. Rick would tell me about conversations where their life experiences and points of view were absolutely in sync. Uh, so Rick felt a real camaraderie with him and, and they really connected us as, as two people. Although Rick did have on his desk a bust of Gene, which he tied a little green, I don't remember the color, a bandana over his eyes, just in case Rick was doing something that Gene might not approve of. This is something I've always wondered. I've heard that story for 30 years or more. Where do you get a bust of Gene Roddenberry? <laughs> Good question. I don't know. Like they didn't have eBay then, so I, have, I don't have a clue. Um, I have to know how Picard's fish came to be named after you. Yeah, well, it was an, it's an insult. Um, Herman oh. Zimmerman was the production designer. And uh, being a production manager, your main job is to say no uh, and prevent people from doing creatively what they want to do because there's no money to do it. So I'm the bad guy. And... Herman felt that the appropriate name for a lionfish who eats goldfish uh, for supper is an appropriate name for the production manager to, to be named after the fish. Wow. And there, uh, I, I would go to, I go to conventions <laughs> and my first convention that I went to, uh, they you do an autograph signing afterwards and 10 to one, uh, I have two trading cards. One is of me and one is of, fit, of the fish. And 10 to 1, the fish uh, 
the fish one. Oh my gosh. Uh, our, uh, our head of production, Cisco Henson, would uh, relate to that story quite a bit. So that's uh, that's body. Let me ask you something before we get. I to need to. Oh, can we, sorry, can we hold on. I'm sorry. Just for a second, I have yeah, yeah. a little tech problem with this. So I'm going to get my kid to help out. Uh, I'm going to mute myself just for a second. I'm sorry. Okay. That's wild about genes. That's why I know it's literally the opposite of everything I've heard for. Again, I'm not. I'm not certain because I wasn't privy to all that stuff. It's only from my observation. No, but you were there. Remembrance. I mean, you were there. Like, yeah. It, yeah, I'm shocked. I always had the image that he was there, and just as much as he had a say in, like, just from like the movies, like his hands are all over the scripts. We see notes and stuff. So I just figured he was there also. When okay, but be but be filming. aware. I I'm saying it from uh not observing what was going on okay that's i didn't i wasn't in the script meetings at that point i didn't i didn't have a clue but you were um, on set i was on set yeah yeah i just thought i thought he was the same way on set as he was like behind the scenes i don't I just, remember I just seeing him a lot. That. i mean he may have he may have come down on an occasion uh you know uh but not to my recollection uh, my memory isn't the greatest, I have to admit. So please don't take what I'm saying as yeah, possible. Yeah, all, all good, all good. Let me ask you this, because you've worked on a lot of shows before and since. Like, were there things about working on Next Gen, and I guess all Star Trek in particular, in, in, to make it broader, where it's like, this only happens on a Star Trek show? Like, pulling this idea out of my butt. Like... Do people steal props as frequently on other shows? I don't mean that literally, but like, what what is it working on Star Trek that's different from every other thing you've done in your career? Uh, it, it, it's freedom uh, and non-interference from the non-creative and production staff. We were our own self-contained family and nobody bugged us. And that was a gift I have, I, I spent a lot of time at Universal doing episodic television. And I don't know if you know, guys know about Universal and the way that they do it. And it's called the factory. This was 180 degrees opposite to how that functioned. We were basically an independent production. Uh, uh, and with, again, without any interference, it was, it was a gift. All right, one more question, one more question. Then we'll move on to Deep Space Nine. Um, so I'm, again, I'm the biggest track. I'm not the biggest trackie, but I'd, I'd say on a scale of one to 10, I'm like, I always, I think I'm a 7.5, 7 which to people that know me that are not trackies, they'd laugh because they think I'm a 10. The Tenudos probably think I'm a five, but I think I'm a 7.5. So, and my, my favorite Star Trek is the Captain Kirk films. My second favorite Star Trek is Next Generation. So here's, so I needed to preface my question with that. Were you sitting there during like season one and two and were you ever like, is anybody reading these scripts before we shoot them? Because the, the first couple of seasons were a little rough story-wise. Like what, did you ever feel that way? Or from your point of view, was it always great from the minute Farpoint started shooting? Um, being involved in episodic television 
you don't hit a home run every every time. And that was part of the understanding of, of Star Trek as well. And seasons one and two were tough and there were some real clunkers. And some of them were necessitated because of money. The, the one where Denise Crosby uh, gets killed, we had to uh, save money on that one. We also had to do a bottle show where basically, a bottle show is a clip show where we take clips from past episodes and then and then have very limited shooting time to, to mold a, an episode around it. And that's just the nature of episodic television. So I didn't see the next generation as any uh, different from uh, an, any other uh, episodic television show. But the thing about Star Trek is it, it was about something. And that was always in every episode that there was always some kind of 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 moral underpinning to it which i which i thought was terrific and it and ultimately feeding back to gene's vision about uh humanity is going to come out okay it's not dystopic it's not you know blade runner and i always uh latched on to that because that was really the core of the show so no different than other episodic television shows, but it did have that, the pretentious word gravitas about it. Now you've managed, uh, for those of you that are not in show business, just to sound like an elitist, um, you managed a very unusual transition. I mean, I can't think of off the top of my head, any production managers who became directors. Would you agree that's not very normal, not very common? Uh, it's not common, uh, but Rick had uh, the DIT school, director and training school, and he offered it to members of the cast and the production staff. And anybody who was serious about it and went into study uh, uh, would be evaluated about whether Rick would let them eventually direct. He knew that I had gone to film. I went to SC film school. He knew I was a film school graduate. Uh, and sitting in dailies, he saw my passion for the material and my comments on the dailies and what directors were doing. And he saw something there, supposedly, and offered me uh, the opportunity to direct if I went to DIT school. So I had, uh, I went through a lot of director uh, study at the Directors Guild, scene study, uh, spending time in the editing room, a lot of time on the set observing other directors. Um, I, during my scene study, I had this cohort of actors that I would draw on and, and I would bring them into auditions for Star Trek as a thank you to those people doing my scene study. And Rick would refer to, to them as my company of players. Uh, and eventually he uh, gave me a, an opportunity to direct. But yes, to answer your question, uh, it's, it's not usual for people to do that. Also, first assistant directors, Les Landau, who was the, um, uh, the first AD on the pilot, uh, or the second AD, I'm not, I, I'm, I, I can't remember specifically, but he ended up directing as well uh, because he had the passion. The main thing is, if you showed Rick your passion and how serious you were, then he was willing to give you a, a break. And that was a pretty extraordinary get uh, for all of us that uh, were able to do it. And he picked some good ones. There's a guy named Jonathan Frakes who uh, came out okay on the directing side. Roxanne Dawson, uh, you know. She's uh, crushing Le it now. LeVar. Yeah. Um, Tim Russ has been directing uh, uh, many, many directors. Let me ask you this, because Rick Berman gets a lot of crap online frequently 
Undeservedly I, so. From what I can tell, I agree with you. Why did he do this DIT? Like he's so busy, he's got so much going on. Seems like a very kind of altruistic thing to do. Yes, but there's also the element of control. And I, Rick is somewhat Machiavellian and he's thinking ahead of everybody else. And there's a, a way when it's in the family, the patriarch has a little bit more say than bringing in the outside guy. I'm not going to say that's what happened, but it's, I, I got to believe it's part of that. Uh, so it is altruistic, but it's also in his interest to have people that he can, he thinks he can depend on that are going to deliver. It's not like hi hiring an outside episodic director, freelancer to come in where he's, uns he's not positive what they're going to give you, give you, even if he's had experience with them in the past. Whereas if they're sitting in the office, that that's a little bit, or, or acting on the set, it's a little bit different. So it's, uh, it's both of those. And they know Star Trek. That's a great point. They, they understand and know Star Trek. That's, that's absolutely quintessential. Although I have to tell you, directing is, it doesn't matter what you're given to direct. You have to go with the material you're given and the given circumstances. So they talk about directors who can do drama or comedy or action or whatever. All directors should be able to do anything some better in some areas as another, but, but a director's job is to take the script and translate it into an emotional experience and a visual experience. So again, having the knowledge of Star Trek is important, but uh, not, not critical in my opinion. Beautiful. So same question I asked you earlier. One morning you woke up, you'd never heard of what would become Deep Space Nine, and then you go to bed that night and you'd be a part of it for the rest of your life. Tell us about that day. When I signed on to Star Trek, I had no, uh, the next generation. Uh, I was gonna quit after uh, the pilot and the first half dozen episodes because I didn't wanna get roped into episodic television. But they gave me a, uh, a, a raise and a new title. I moved from production manager to an above the line position as uh, the line producer. So I stayed with the show. And after how many seasons was it, the Deep Space Nine? Seven. Were we in the set? Oh, no, we were. Oh, oh um, yeah. I think fourth, Next Gen was in season or fifth? Six. Season yeah. five. Season six, five. Six when it came out, but yeah. five when it was green. They were planning, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah fifth season. Uh, and, and Rick told me, he says, we're planning another Star Trek. And I went, whoa, that's, that's wild. Because I had never been experienced uh, a spinoff or another cohort of a, of a particular story. So I was quite surprised. And then I guess it was automatically assumed that I was going to be uh, the line producer for it. And I'm going, oh my God, I got to do two shows now. <laughs> so it was, it was a little bit daunting, especially when I read the pilot script because it was huge. And it, to me, it wasn't Star Trek and, and Deep Space Nine has never been, it's been a different kind of, of, of show. But I read the script and I was blown away by its largesse. And when I woke up, as you were asking, it's like, whoa, how, how am I gonna pull this off? How are we gonna pull this off? How is this production staff going to be able to do two series simultaneously? 
little did I know that that was only the beginning of what was going to happen. Uh, so that that was my first reaction. So how'd you do it? What happened? We girded our loins. Uh, again, because we had the money and the responsibility and the talent pool, we were able to pull it off. And everybody knew, Mary Joe, talking about your knowing Star Trek, we knew what Star Trek was. We Everybody knew their jobs. As a, as a line producer, I had very little to do after a couple of seasons of The Next Generation. So going into Deep Space Nine is, well, let's just keep doing what we've been doing. We're just gonna have to hire more people. And that was sort of it. Everybody was on the program and we, we did, we pulled it off. Deep Space Nine was a tough pilot. There's no denying that, but we got through it. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. And speaking of talent, I understand you had a role in casting Avery Brooks? Yes. Uh, Michael Piller wanted to uh, entertain having uh, an African-American as uh, Commander Sisko. And I had done a movie for Edgar Sherrick uh, as a production manager, uh, a, a version of Uncle Tom's Cabin for Showtime. And Avery played Uncle Tom. And he was unbelievable in it with his inscrutable, mis mysterious, dark side uh, where you never knew where he was coming from, but the depth of his emotion and his character was overwhelming and so emotionally grabbing as Uncle Tom. So I told uh, Junie, I said, the, the casting director, I said, uh, what about Avery Brooks? And she said, yeah, we talked about Avery, but, but he's in the Bahamas on vacation. And I said, well, okay, so what? Are you telling me that Avery is not going to want to see a script for a show that might give him seven years of work? And Junie said, oh, okay, we'll, we'll send him the script. They sent him the script. The rest is history. Parenthetic to, parenthetical to that, at the wrap party for um, uh, D Space Nine, and Avery is not a person to offer much. He, as I said, he's very inscrutable and very careful and when he says something to you, you can take it to the bank. He came up to me and he said, David, thank you for uh, Deep Space Nine. And I'll never forget that. I thought that was the most generous thing uh, that a person has, has ever said to me, certainly an actor. Uh, I certainly wasn't the primary reason, but he recognized my role in getting in that part. And I'm thrilled that he did it. Avery, he was, he was a soul, he reflected what Deep Space Nine was. I mean, to me, it was perfect casting. I don't know any other actor who could have brought what he brought to the table for that show. Agreed. And, and eventually the writers, the writers didn't get Avery in the beginning. They, they, they got what the show was, but they didn't understand what their lead guy was doing. And finally, they started writing to him, not to his character, but to him. 
And that was a huge difference in the show. And finally letting him shave his head and growing the mustache, that's when Cisco became Cisco because it was Avery. Avery became Cisco. So what do you mean when you say the pilot was tough? The amount of production on the pilot that we had to produce in the time that was, was provided was impossible. I don't care what people you had doing it, and we had the best, but the production schedule was a bit of a canard. When you do a pilot, and I did several at Paramount, I also did the, the pilot for seven days, which was even stupider. Um, when you do a pilot, you have to fool yourself and the studio because you know going in that you're not gonna make the schedule. You're gonna go extra days and you're gonna go over budget and probably in something that involves visual and special effects and multiple locations and all kinds of hazari, you're gonna go over schedule and spend a lot of extra money. That's, that's, a, that's a given in, in the world of pilots. And the studio knows that, it's a, it's a game and everybody recognizes it, but it's also a dance. And Deep Space Nine lived up to that paradigm that it was an incredible amount of work to accomplish in the time that was available. We shot 15, 16 hour days. And I'm responsible for David Carson because I got his uh, reel. Actually, I think it was Tim Isofano who was production executive at Paramount sent me over. I, one of my jobs as a supervising producer was to get director reels in, evaluate them, and then if I thought they were good to recommend them to Rick. I looked at the reel for David Carson and I said, this guy's got a great visual imagination. He seems to handle the actors really well. There's a, there's a certain emotional context to his work that I really, really respect. He also had a British accent and I'm a sucker for British accents. So, and he went to RADA and all this stuff. So I figured, well, he's really high on the food chain. So I recommended him to Rick and Rick hired him. He did Yesterday's Enterprise, which was one of the great uh, Next Generation shows. And Rick then hired him to, uh, to direct the, uh, the pilot for Deep Space Nine. And I love David, he's a personal friend, we socialized, but David has the conscience of a rattlesnake, just like all directors should have. Um, his only interest is to, to create the best show he can and damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. He could care less about the budget, he could care less about the schedule, he could care less about me, could care less about Rick Berman. All he cared about was delivering the show that was in his head because his responsibility is to take that script and make it live. And I respected him for that, but he drove me insane. <laughs> and I had to go up to him on many occasions and have my talk. And I know how to do the talk and I've had the talk done to me. So I'm really good at it but he wouldn't let go. That, that, another uh, thing, you know, is that dog who grabs onto that, your ankle and you can't shake him off. All right, David. What? I, I'm going to be David Carson, all right? Okay. It's day four of the pilot. Maybe we're half a day behind schedule and I don't give a fuck. I'm just spending money, taking a lot of time to light, insert shots. Come to me right now. Give me the talk. 
Are you rusty? When's the last time you gave the talk? <laughs> well, it's been a it's been 20 years. So All right. come on. Um, I need 20 lights. D David, David and I had a very good relationship. No, no, no. I want to role play. Okay. I want to role David, play. you and I have a great relationship. Yeah. Okay. Because you let me I, do everything I want. We hired you. Yeah. You know that I am on your side. David, when I worked at Universal, I got in trouble with the studio because I was considered a producer's production manager. Well, now I'm a supervising producer who is a director's supervising producer. My interest is to make you look as good as possible. Right now, we're having an issue because I can't keep doing that if you keep doing what you're doing, okay? You have to help me get through this so I can protect you. My job is to protect you. If you can't find a way to help me, I don't know what I can do to keep helping you. What am I doing wrong? You're over schedule and you're taking too much time and we're driving the crew into the ground. If you wanna have a productive crew, we've gotta lighten up on them. We have to figure out what to do to ease up the load. Get, you know, finish early someday, do something to help us, to help us out here. I don't know what it is that's really your job, but I'm coming to you on a personal basis saying, how are we gonna proceed without uh, having the heavyweights come in? Because the, you don't want the studio coming to talk to you, okay? I'm your first line of defense. I'm letting you know there's an issue. So don't do it, help me out. You don't want the studio coming down. And you had to have that conversation with him multiple times. I, I don't know if I ever had that conversation, but it sounds good. But, but you had to do that with him multiple times. I, we had a lot. I, I don't know. I can't remember. I, I just know that, that I was acute. I was always on the set from the be beginning of the day to the end of the day. I was an active uh, line producer. Rick said, you, you're on this thing. Forget about the next generation. I need you here. You are my point man. The script supervisor wouldn't call him script changes. I would call him into Rick. because And he and I had unbelievable amounts of conversations about, about across, across the board about, about D Space Nine. It was the most involvement that I've ever had from, as a producer in a production. I was in the casting sessions, which he invited me to. Uh, I had never had that kind of, uh, of involvement as a line producer. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm off. Did per, did perfectionism play a role? Was it wanting to get it right? Or was he just like getting sparks of, of imagination where he thought, well, let's try it this way or let's try it that way? Or was it just wanting to keep doing it better and better? Again, the schedule was impossible to make. And you have to accept that. So that's not really on the director. That's my fault for preparing or having the AD prepare a schedule that was unmakeable. But David had a tenacity in working with the actors to make sure that he got the moment right. As a director, you can't walk away from a scene if you don't have the emotion in it and you don't, you don't deliver the scene. And David would not do that. There might've been other directors who would have. There are certain episodic directors who say, that's fine, we're moving on. David knew that he was doing a pilot for a show that was potentially gonna run for seven years and he didn't wanna mess it up. So that's why I have great respect for him. That's why I take the position of the director. But again, my job was to protect him. 
So when I when I would ask him about stuff or con, I'll use the word confront him about stuff, it wasn't to beat up on him. And I got the I got the reputation across the series that I did work on that I was kind of doing that to directors. And I had one director even complain about me once. That wasn't my intention, though. My intention was to help them and facilitate them, not to be a, a ball buster. I'm, I'm not going to ask his name. So you can answer this question knowing I will not ask you to name. Okay. The director who complained about you, did he ever work on Star Trek again? I'm not sure. He may, he may or may, I, I, I can't remember. It's so this is 30 years ago. The, the reason I ask is what I find really impressive is you would think somebody driving you crazy during the pilot wouldn't be brought back to do more episodes, let alone the first film. It's impressive that Star Trek had this kind of robust attitude, or, or maybe I'm reading it wrong. David Carson delivered the pilot. Of course you're going to hire him again. Do you, you don't know how many times I was called into Rick's office and told the cast hates you, the crew hates you, the production staff hates you. The studio hates you. Literally using the word hate. He says, but I like you. And the reason he liked me because he felt that I delivered the episodes. And he was willing to put up with my craziness. And I am forever grateful for, to him for that. I don't know if it's true that I delivered all that stuff for him, but he kept hiring me and I was shocked. But that's how you know he was being honest with I, you. I guess so. And Jerry Taylor, I knew I drew her crazy, but she, I asked her, I saw her at the last convention and I said, why did Rick, why did Rick keep hiring me when, when you guys didn't even like me? And he said, because you delivered the shows. And that's ultimately it. Production, studio, producers, they'll put up with a lot of stuff if you deliver. If you don't deliver, you're out of there. Wow. It's simply, it's simply, you, we're creating widgets. Is this widget good enough to put in the iPhone? All right, well, you can keep making the widgets for us. That is, uh, that is a very funny and a very beautiful story. Here, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a real, this is the kid at the back raising his hand, asking a question. You're like, why do I even do conventions? Because this has mystified me for, how old is Deep Space Nine now? What, 30? Not 93, 93 it premiered, wasn't it? 93, I don't know. So about 25, yeah. about 27, whatever. The, the, the circular doors that spun like on two axes when they would open and close to the pylons. Were you like just trying to torture yourselves? Was there like Star Trek is famous for doors? We got to find the fucking craziest door. We because I would sit there and I remember even as a kid watching the pilot being like, and again, I didn't know what producers did. I didn't know anything about logistics, but I just remember looking at those doors being like, that looks like uh, that's not some guy off camera pulling a string and opening that. Like, was that a very deliberate effort to find something insane? Or am I just making a mountain out of a molehill? Okay, I have no idea. Are you literally talking about doors? Yes. <laughs> there are those airlock doors. I, okay, well, the, they're big. Was. We had Dick Brownfield and what's his name, his assistant. Uh, 
His job was to pull the string to open and close the doors. And our biggest issue was door bounce because no matter what you did, as soon as the two rubber pieces gaskets met, they would go like that. And we, we had to do countless takes to get rid of the door bounce. And finally, at some point through Deep Space Nine, they came up with a solution where the doors didn't bounce anymore. And at that point, that was a miracle. But but that sounds like the regular doors. There were Which these, one are you talking about? The airlock doors? There were these doors that looked like gears. And basically- Yeah, on the, Deep Space Nine, yeah, you're talking, the, talking about the big the, circular yeah, one? Yeah, the gear the would spin yeah. within its arms, right. but then the arm would move too. Right. And again, as a kid, I'm like, that's a lot of moving parts for a door. Was was there? A, was that a delay? I told you this was a fucking crazy question. No, no, no. It, it was the, you're talking about the airlock doors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm sure it was. Ultimately, was incredibly simple. But, but with you with a production background, you were yeah. never like, hey, guy. When you're looking at the blueprints, you're never like, hey, guys, can you make a, like a fucking door and not like a engineering masterpiece? I. I certainly didn't do that. I looked at all the set designs on D Space Nine and I loved them all. Because I know if I wanted to make that door, yeah. our head of production, the guy told yeah. you about Cisco, yeah. he'd be like, Brian, no door for you. <laughs> the thing about Star Trek, and especially in terms of design, is it all had to be created out of whole cloth and it had to look like stuff that wasn't a door. You're wanting a door would have been boring. We, our people were so imaginative that they came up with stuff that created the exact reaction that you had. It's like, where did they come up with that? Well, that's exactly it. Every week we had to come up with the wow factor of where did they come up with that? Michael Westmore had to do it for makeup. Uh, Bob Blackman had to do it for costumes. Herman Zimmerman uh, and uh, Richard James had to do it for the sets. Every seven days, these creators had to come up with something that didn't exist in reality. And that's what made it so extraordinary visually and had you as, a, as an observer saying, what the heck is that? So that's purposeful. And you don't, you don't put your thumb on that. You give them a budget and I want everybody to spend every penny they have and to come up with this unique stuff that they can. You don't wanna uh, stifle their creativity. You want them to create airlocks. Don't pick on the airlocks. Beautiful. John, get in here, man. I know you got a lot of questions. Well, actually, I wanted to tell a story to David, uh, and then from that, a, a question. Um, back in 1995, I was just uh, starting teaching. I, I guess it's a, probably a bit like an actor. Uh, you know, you're, They ask you, can you teach this class? And when you're starting, you just say, of course I can, even if you've never taught it before and don't know what you're going to do. And I, I was asked to teach a class on death and dying, sociology of death and dying. So uh, I get this class, and, and to make matters worse, I would say 80% of the class are these gigantic football players. They're all taking this class because after this class, they're going to go to practice, right? And so I'm like in the class, and I'm looking at these like hulking, you know, just enormous guys. Anyway, uh, so the visitor, which you directed uh, for, for fans who are listening, remember the episode, The Visitor played while I was teaching that class. And I, I have to tell you, I think that is the single best hour of Star Trek in all 800 episodes of Star Trek. And I mean that sincerely. It is the most beautiful episode, that ending where Cisco 
says I'm all right now. You know, I can't act like 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 Avery does, but just so I was looking for contact, you know, context for this class. I was looking for something. So I played that episode the week after it aired in class. And, and the students were all like, we're never going to date again. Star Trek, why are you showing us this? To a person in that class, they were crying at the end of that episode. They understood that episode. They got it. And, and it was, it's really the most beautiful father and son episode I have not only just of Star Trek, but that I've ever seen. So first, I just wanted to thank you for that, because that is such a, it is Star Trek and just TV, uh, I think at its best. Can you just tell us a little bit about making that episode, what that was like, and, and, and your, your remembrances of, of that episode? Well, thank you for your comments, but it starts with the word. And my job is simply to take the word and, and help, help the actors translate it into into something you can watch. Speaking of crying, Rick's way of complimenting me on the episode was to call me into the office and say, you made my wife cry. But I had quit as a producer on the show. And my first episode, or my second episode as a freelancer, I got the script for The Visitor. And I read it and I was freaked out because I didn't have a clue. I didn't get it. I said, what's this about? I, it's, I don't understand it. This isn't Star Trek. It's where's the action? Where's the stunts? Where's the this? Uh, and Steve Oster, who had taken my job as the line producer, I, I went to him and I said, Steve, I, I have no idea. What, what am I going to do with this? I'm never, they're never going to let me direct again if I have to direct this. And he said, David, this is one of the best things we've ever had. So I have to cop that I did not get it. So I read it again and I went home and looked at my son. And as soon as I saw him, the light bulb went off in my head and I said, okay, now I get it. Now I know how I can relate to the material. All I have to do is draw off of my love and my relationship with my own son. And that was the hook for me. Uh, I didn't have a hook before that. So I'm really grateful that I, that I found it. And uh, it's not my favorite episode, but from an emotional standpoint, it's, it's my, my favorite. And for the impact that it's, that it's had on the, on the fans, because the writing really is uh, quite extraordinary. And it's, it's about a father and son relationship, which which couldn't be more profound. And it doesn't have to just apply to father and son. It can be mother, daughter, father, uh, father's brother, sister, whatever. But it's that relationship of familial love that was so, so extraordinary. And then to have two people like Avery Brooks and Tony Todd playing it was just extraordinary. My my speaking of crying, my biggest job on on the episode was uh, to prevent Tony from crying after every take. I said, Tony, I love how you're emotionally invested in this, but you can't cry on every take. You got you got to you got to pick your moments here, because he I, I don't I don't know how he could go home at night and and go to sleep because he just gave the investment that he put into that. And I see him a lot. In fact, we're having a, uh, a Star Trek Zoom thing for a charity that I work with in, in uh, Los Angeles. 
And Tony has agreed to appear on it with Rachel Robinson, who played who played the visitor. And hopefully we're gonna get Ciroc uh, to participate uh, in it as well. Uh, and we're gonna revisit for a, uh, about a half an hour, uh, the visitor. And I'm really looking forward to it because every time Tony and I see the, uh, see each other, uh, we go back to that moment and it, there, there's a bond between us and his, I light up when I see his face and he lights up when he sees mine. And I don't wanna speak for Tony, but I think he's probably most proud of that episode uh, because of what he did. And I'm grateful to Ron Surma, who is Junie Lowry's casting assistant to have suggested him. We originally were considering Ciroc to, to at least audition for it, but that was kind of crazy. I mean, how is a you know 14 year old kid gonna pull this off? Um, I was willing to at least read him and maybe do a makeup test or whatever, but but we didn't need to do that. And Tony was just extraordinary. I do want to mention, I mean, John did say earlier this week to David Carson, yesterday's Enterprise was his favorite episode out of all 800 Star Trek episodes. So he's a hypocrite. So I'm sorry to throw you under no, the bus, John. I didn't I'm say just it kidding. was my I'm just kidding. Episode. He didn't say that. It's a, it's I, a, I, he I didn't say that. It's, yeah. a, it's a terrific, he didn't say that. It's a terrific, wonderful episode. And most people don't know that Eric Stilwell, who was a PA that I hired for the show, and every day he thought I was going to fire him because he was doing something wrong. It was his story idea with another guy. And he, he now gets to go on the convention circuit. He's going to be on our Zoom thing because he is responsible for yesterday's enterprise conceptually. Uh, and most people, I don't know, did you guys know that about Eric Stilwell's involvement? Yeah, we're friends with Eric. He's such a okay. great guy. Yeah, I, I, I told love, you. I, I told Eric. you the Tenitos are ten out of ten. Okay, well, I love Eric, and and he and I had a uh, a fraught relationship. I loved him, but he, he he was so he just walked on eggshells all the time. Well, you know Eric. I mean, that's yeah. his that's his personality. And he was and a I fan. Said, he was a fan he too. I think that was that, a dream for him to be there. That I was think. the problem. And Rick would call me in and said, we got to stop hiring these fans because he he knew what Eric was and I had to keep protecting uh, Eric from Rick and he ended up working for Rick eventually. But but Rick Rick had a problem with fans, especially if they were on the show because you know, he, didn't, he didn't need that service. Uh, all jokes aside, I mean, John, that, what, a, what, what a great question and what a, oh. that was a very powerful answer. No, I, I, I tell you, I, I, that was the day I, I remember, you know, there was a, a little bit of me was thinking about leaving teaching at that time. I was doing part-time teaching and I was thinking there has to be a better way to make a living. And, and that class really changed my mind because I had such a, 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 an experience with it. I went out and becoming a full-time teacher. But um, uh, th so that episode, it means a lot to me. My, my dad is gone. I'm sure a lot of listeners' parents are gone. Uh, or I've had some, yeah, had some family that you you lose, and I tell you that episode is just that. Um, who doesn't have that fantasy of can I save? What could I, you know, what could I have done? Could I have saved that that idea? Such an amazing uh, episode. I, I was also thinking about. Um, so I, I sometimes I'll, we'll, both Mary Jo and I will use Star Trek in class if we want to talk about something controversial. But we don't. We we always want to walk a line between telling students what to think and just giving them something to think about. So we we never want to tell them what to think. And so obviously, the pandemic is on a lot of students' minds for a, a variety of reasons. 
So at our school and at a lot of schools, there's, there's a mandate that you, you cannot be on campus unless you either undergo testing or you get the vaccine. Now we, we have alternatives for students like Zoom and things like that. But so to have my students think about it without necessarily getting into it or a political discussion or anything like that with them, I show them the homecoming episode that, that David also directed because that, that idea is in there where you have Jake's, Jake's grandfather and Ben's dad refusing testing. He doesn't want to be tested. They're, they're testing all, everybody to see if they're a changeling or not. And, and that was just, you know, a, a, there's so many episodes like that, Equinox, which kind of gets into the idea of waterboarding or torturing, you know, an, another f life form. Uh, before we get to that in reality, Star Trek has this sort of ability to be relevant 20 years after uh, an episode is aired. And I was just wondering how, when you, when you were making the show, either on the production side or directing, how much were social issues on people's minds when, when they were writing scripts, when you were directing? Was there the idea that in, in many ways, we always say that Star Trek is just sociology disguised? It's just it's just a science fiction version of sociology or psychology or or any kind of social science. Was that was that there? Was that something that everybody was aware of when they were making the show? Yeah, I can't help you much there because I was not a writer on the show. I sold a couple of story ideas and they produced one of them, but I'm not a writer. And that's where it came from. Again, it's it's all about the word. So these discussions that they had in the writer's room, which I was not privy to, certainly were ground in those social issues because that's what Star Trek always was. It's, 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 it's part of the program. And then we had people like Michael Piller. Michael Piller came from a journalistic background and delved into all this stuff professionally. So he brought that to, to the table. Jerry Taylor was always involved with, uh, with women's causes and stuff. And she, she brought that sensitivity to it. So we had uh, writers on the staff who had uh, personal investment in that kind of stuff, but I wasn't privy to how it was developed or, or the specifics about how we're gonna address that uh, particular issue. I was just gifted the material. And obviously when you're directing, you have to find, you always have to try and find the premise of the episode. Something leads to something or it's about this. And if you find that, then you have a grounding that you can base everything around it. And with Star Trek, that was always pretty easy because it was always about something. And, and that, that's the magic of it. And, and it's about something where it, it doesn't get judgmental and it may uh, have uh, questions of morality, which, which can't be uh, judged on. You can't, it's non-judgmental. And that's sort of the magic of the show that they we were willing to, uh, to take these risks to explore explore these issues, and sometimes much to the chagrin of uh, of the fans, the idea of uh, homosexuality was was uh, talked about a lot but never addressed because it was just we were ahead of our time on a lot of issues. Uh, that one would have been a good one to do, and I know that it's probably one of the regrets to to all the writers that that's one of the issues uh, that hadn't been explored. Uh, but we certainly tackled a, a, lot, uh, a lot of other ones. 
Well, I'd love to follow up on what you just said about you had pitched several stories, and I wanted to know if there was one that you wish had been made that wasn't. Uh, I didn't pitch several. I probably pitched 30. And oh, always wow. To Jerry, always to Jerry Taylor, and she was very, very open. <sighs> okay, the, uh, a story out of school, but um, I pitched one uh, story. Uh, and they'd had it for a couple months or something. And I get a script on my desk and I'm reading it and I'm going, this is my story. And I was so pissed and I went into Rick and, and uh, he got Jerry into the room. And I said, guys, I, this, I pitched this story a month ago. And they said, hey, David, you don't have any clue as to how many similar stories we get, we get mailbags full of stuff. We get freelancers coming and pitching. There are so many stories that are similar to the kind of stuff that we do. We did not, we don't, Jerry didn't even remember reading my pitch. And they said, David, we did not do anything untoward or intentional or trying to sandbag you. And it was a big learning experience for me because my ego got in the way. It's like, well, they use my story. So, so uh, I was chastened after that, and uh, I never let anything bother me after that. I love that question, Mary Jo, so much. Do you remember any of your ideas where you're like, oh, man, I wish they well, had done that? The other story that they bought, which I thought would have been a fun episode and it would have been cheap, was uh, Data and uh, Mrs. Troy trapped in a shuttle out in nowhere and having to navigate to to survive and to return to the enterprise and it's uh to me it would be the odd, ultimate odd couple yes. and majel one of the worst episodes I ever did was with majel because majel episodes were always problematic but i thought this one would have been good because her comedic skills could have come through and brent is as we all know is a natural born comedian why and i would have loved i would have loved that episode why were Wait. her episodes Sorry, Mary Jo, go ahead. I was, gonna, I was gonna say the same thing. You can't just say that and leave us hanging. The way that they were written for her character. I, 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 don't, I don't know why they were, uh, they just never, well, you guys tell me, what's a good major episode? A uh, her, episode? her and Jordy, I've said- Her and Odo? High school. Uh, really? Ne they were okay. never written well. Let, let me back up then. The episode that I had to do with me, I'm being unfair then. The episode I had to do with Major was one of the worst I ever did. No, they, her and Jordy were just okay. not well-written characters. Oh, 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 you're, oh, I'm saying you're agreeing. Okay. Oh, I completely agree. Oh, Jordy and LeVar was oh, way, way underwritten. Jordy drove me nuts yeah, until and, uh, best of, um, not best of all, um, he, drove, he basically drove me nuts until season seven when they started to understand how to write for the character yeah. and they gave up on all the cliches with him. And... Poor, poor Luxana Troy. Like they just. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think they ever got Luxana, and so my idea would have been great. My, but uh, Ron, Ron Moore was in the room when I, uh, when I went to the writers' uh, pitch meeting, and uh, he wasn't thrilled with it. I think he didn't. I think he didn't want to write for another Troy episode. He didn't want to do yeah. it. Well, I, my theory was it came from Gene, and he created a just horrible character for her. Like that was, again, with no factual basis in reality, 
Cause I'm like, he's in charge of everything. It's his wife. He could have, he, she could have been a Starfleet Admiral. She could have been Admiral Nechev. That would have like, been good. Why? Like, anyway. I don't, I don't know. I can't explain that. Uh, she was underwritten and yeah. uh, I. Uh, she's a I great mean, actress. We're not doing that routine. She was, again, she would have been. Yeah, it, it, I think she it, was. I think she was good at when, when they gave her stuff to do. I think that half a life episode. Oh, that was good. Was a beautiful episode where she she's with a guy who has to kill himself at a certain age. The premise of that was a great premise. Uh, the guy from Mash, David Ogden Steers, is that, is that his name? Right? Yeah. Very veiny. But that was not the that was not the corny over the top. Exactly. Luella Oxana Troy. That was. Uh, that was a good character piece. Yeah, much more measured. And I think when they did that with her, they gave that, that gave the character a, a reality to it where where otherwise it was really just a comedic. Yeah, you have to have an ultimate grounding that uh, you can't do just do shtick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Brent Brent was great doing shtick, but he was uh, you know he wanted to be a man. He wanted to be a human. Uh, this was uh, this is I know this is Enterprise, but uh, I, I also think uh, Shuttle Pod One is such a wonderful episode. Any memories about that? Because we were kind of curious. Was it really? I mean, we're seeing their breath inside the the the, the two characters. Are stuck. Was it really cold in there? Did you freeze those guys out, or how did you do that? I I dressed for gnome for that episode. <laughs> uh, it we refrigerated it, and it and still the breath. I had to redo a lot of stuff because I couldn't see the breath and I felt horrible for the actors because we were just going for an effect. And I thought it was really dumb today with digital uh, technology, we would have added all that stuff and we wouldn't have had to make it cold, but it helped the actors. And without it being cold, I don't think that you would have, they would have not had a tool in their toolbox to draw off of because they were really, really cold. And Dominic, let me know, because if you guys know Dominic, Dominic lets you know what he's thinking. Connor, <laughs> throw anything at him, but, but Dominic, uh, yeah. That was a really hard show to shoot too because of that set. And one day I called Herman Zimmerman over before lunch and I said, Herman, uh, you need to cut the set in half. And he said, what? I said, I can't keep shooting this thing because there's no place to put the camera. And he said, yeah, but it's all one big superstructure and it's metal going through here. And I said, well, you can cut through metal. And he said, okay, let me go get Tommy and who is the construction coordinator, called Tommy over and he says, Tommy, David wants to cut the set in half at lunch. He said, and uh, can you do that? And he says, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so, so at lunch, they cut the set in half and now I could shoot the show properly. Shouldn't, they shouldn't have built it the way they did to begin with. Do you know yeah. what it's like to be cold? I do now after that episode. Yeah, and, again, and sitting in this room here, you know, it's about I mean, 12 it's, degrees. Yeah, and you're in, you guys are in, where are you in Illinois? Illinois. You look yeah, very comfortable. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> to, my, to the great producers of the show, yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is like 20 in here. I, mean, yeah. I am freezing. Rick, Rick, I think Rick wrote, wrote that episode, didn't he? I, yes, I think he did. Yeah, that was, yeah. He he was very complimentary to me on that one, which uh, which which surprised me because I think he was probably concerned how we were going to be able to pull it off because it's a it's a it was a tough one. 
but uh, they both pulled the hell out of it. And you really got that relationship and, and, and it's about relationship and about sacrifice again, which, which I think is always a, a great thing for a drama to be based on. I got two questions left. One serious, one stupid. Not as stupid as the doors question, so don't worry. It wasn't stupid. I thought it was kind of interesting. All right, all right. Well, you're very but, kind. Yeah. Um, Tenudos, last licks. Anything uh, before I ask my two questions? No, just, uh, you know, uh, we would encourage fans, if you're... It, you want to look at a, a list of impressive episodes, look at the episode. I mean, when you look at David's list of episodes, it's just amazing. Flat flashback from Voyager, the, you know, the, the, the 30th anniversary episode with, with, um, with uh, George Takei and just, there's so many great and, and important episodes, Scorpion, where you really get to know seven of nine for the first time. Uh, just so many great episodes. So, uh, do yourself a favor. Do a do a David Livingston marathon. Flash flashback. Uh, <laughs> the best shot I ever did on the on any series was a reveal of George. George always George Takei always wanted to be. He he kept telling me, and he's always said it to everybody. I don't know why Paramount didn't create a series where I was a captain on a on a on a series. He couldn't understand that. So I wanted to present George in the most bold and magnificent way possible. So I had the special effects guys uh, squirt in a bunch of uh, liquid nitrogen gas uh, and fill up the frame of it. And I put the camera really low and had George for the reveal of the uh, episode walk through the, uh, the cloud of, uh, <laughs> of nitrogen to make him seem majestic. <laughs> and he's about, he's about that tall. <laughs> he's, I, he's a great guy though. He really, he's cool. All right, stupid question, important question, stupid question. Par wraiths, did they make Deep Space Nine better or worse? I'll give you my opinion and my answer. Well, I don't it know what it is. For... Really weird, stupid uh, religious things in the cave. So the, the par wraiths are the sort of anti prophets. They're the, yeah. oh, the, you the, know, the devil, the devil, I guess you could say. Yeah, the yeah, prophets yeah. Angel. I have to be honest that. When they got into the Dominion and stuff, um, I didn't watch the shows. Um, I probably should have, but I was a freelancer at that point. I love working with uh, uh, Louise Fletcher. I got to do some stuff with her, but I don't know about, I never had any experience or involvement with the par race. Is that? You're, you're very lucky. You're very lucky because <laughs> I'm pretty sure okay. Deep Space Nine is behind Next Gen for me at least. Almost single-handedly because of that plot line. Okay. I love the Dominion War. Yeah. But anything to do with that, those par rates. Well, I, I have Ira Bear's uh, email address if you'd like it. Oh, no. So one of my favorite emails of 2021 came from him. Okay. Uh, and it was him declining to do the show. Okay. It could not have been. I mean, if he wasn't a writer, I would have hunted him down and made him become a writer based on that email. It was funny. It was truthful. And it was actually a very emotionally powerful email that he wrote. So I, Ira is a unique human being. Yes. He, he he's, uh, he's, he's very special. I think at some point I will probably print and frame that email. It was so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. He, he's, he's, uh, he's a good one. And then my last thing, it's not really a question, but you know, we always want people, if they have anything to plug, we want them to plug them. If you don't mind, 
And obviously we're just trying to help here in any little way we can. You've mentioned you're a part of a food bank. You wanna talk about that, get yeah, the word I, out? I'd love to do that. Uh, I'm on the board of directors and shoot social media, both video and stills for a charity in Hollywood called the Hollywood Food Coalition. And we serve a nightly meal. We haven't missed a meal in 30 years. Uh, we have a takeout uh, uh, situation now because of COVID. Uh, we used to have a sit down and hopefully we're gonna have a sit down uh, coming uh, in, the, in the future. But uh, we serve a couple of hundred people a night. We also have what's called the community exchange uh, where we act as a clearinghouse. We have uh, contributors uh, come in and drop off food and we uh, weigh it and analyze it and, and sort it and then provide it to uh, other organizations who pick up the food and distribute it uh, to other uh, organizations as well as to our nightly dinner program. We have a wellness uh, a cohort that uh, uh, UCLA UCLA uh, brings a mobile van to our uh, campus uh, once a week. We have an eye clinic. We have a vaccination clinic. We we help our clients get COVID money, and uh, we're growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, and John Billingsley, who played Flocks on Enterprise, is the president of the board. And he and I have always talked about trying to do a Star Trek fundraiser, and we are going to have one now virtually on January 15th of next year. And we have a huge group of wonderful uh, Star Trek actors, producers, writers, and uh, behind the scenes people. Uh, and it's probably gonna be about six hours. And uh, I would love anybody that's interested to, uh, to tune into it. I don't have uh, any more information, but uh, anybody who wants to uh, write me, I don't know if you can Get the word out. Should I? Please. You can you can write me at uh, David Livingston at hofoco.com. That's H-O-F-O-C-O.com. Um, and John and, and Mary Jo and uh, Brian was mentioning it. I would love to get you in contact with our the people who are facilitating it. There's a couple of uh, bloggers. They have what's we're calling it Trek Talk, but they're called the Trek Guys. Uh, I think that's their the name of their podcast. I don't know if you know them, but um, if you guys are interested in uh, reposting whatever we're going to do or whatever to your social media, it would be great because it's really a great organization. And also all of the people that are going to be appearing on the podcast, we are encouraging them to also uh, tout their particular charity. And we will pro be providing on-screen information about that as well. So um, it's, I think it's a worthwhile uh, project. Beautiful. And I did lie. I didn't do it on purpose, but I did lie. I have one more question. Okay. And it's even worse than that. It's a two-parter, but I'm going to ask it in reverse order because I don't want to end this episode on a downer. So it's the same question, but two different sides of it. Question 1A. <laughs> What's your least favorite episode you've directed? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, it may have. Uh, it may be the one where Kim is trapped inside of a uh, coffin on Voyager. I don't remember the name of it, and also the one that I did with Majel on Deep Space Nine. Again, I don't remember the names of these, of these, uh, of these shows. Okay. But those two, uh, and the the one with Majel, there was a a well known episodic actress who was quite a 
a starlet in her day. She came in to do the episode and it was just, it was horrible. Also, uh, the one, I shouldn't say that, the one I had to do with Fomka wasn't, well, you know what? I had fun doing the one with Fomka. It was just difficult because she's not a, she, she, well, I, I don't want to say that. I Can you wanna, say it in a way that well might not offend uh, people or her? Uh, yeah. Fomka is not, uh, not Fomka. Um, I'm thinking. Padma. Pa Padma, Padma Lakshmi. Lakshmi. Fomka was Pre great. Precious, precious Cargo. Precious yeah, Cargo. Precious Cargo was tough because of the inexperience of Padma. Connor took over the job of directing her because I did not have the facility to be able to do it. And he was incredibly patient and nurturing to her to get us through the episode. When we were casting, we had an, an, act, an experienced actress who everybody else wanted, and I wanted Padma because she's Padma. I mean, look at her and, and the charisma that she has. And I said, you got to go with the beef. And Rick said, okay, if you think you can get it. And it was, it was, it was, it was difficult, uh, but she pulled it off. And I thought, I thought very well, but it was, it was, it was difficult. I don't know. Every time I see her and I, I'm a photographer now and I see her at events and stuff and she kind of looks at me askance and I think she knows that. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. What? So we did the 50th anniversary of Star Trek for History Channel five yeah. years ago. Yeah. Between that and this show, we have been trying to book her. She will not talk to us. And people on her team never, because she, I guess, talks to everybody about everything. And her team has never understood why she won't talk to us. So maybe now we know. Yeah, it's... It, yeah, uh, act, act, let's put it this way, acting is not her forte. And it's, it's a tough job. And she had, she, she had to sit next to Connor and do pages and pages. I mean, she had reams of dialogue that we give to very rarely to, to give to, to uh, guest stars. So we put her in a, I put her in a very difficult position. And in hindsight, maybe I didn't make the best call, but she she does have she pulled it off she, and she does have that it there's an yeah. it factor about sure. her and to me you go with the it factor and if you have to put up with a lot of stuff to get it go for it go for the gusto that's don't be safe show businesses are now are not not being about about being safe safe is boring and then the last question you can probably guess one b Favorite, top favorite, three episodes, favorite, second favorite, third favorite that you've done for Star Trek. Okay, my favorite is my uh, Enterprise zombie episode. What was it called? Uh, is it um, Impulse, wasn't it? Impulse. Impulse, Impulse. Yeah. yeah, by far. And the reason is, is because it was a zombie movie. I got to do that. And I got to do angles and, my first episode, what was it called? Um, the mind's eye. Mind's eye. I got a lot of trouble from Rick about the way I shot it because I did a lot of weird stuff with the camera. And I kept doing that. But with Impulse, I finally had an episode that I could just throw caution to the wind and do everything I want to. And Herman, God bless him, built the set on above the stage floor so I could shoot up and do all this crazy stuff. And Jolene Blaylock just played the hell out of it, going insane and doing all these wonderful things. So that 
that's that's my favorite. My second favorite is the Voyager episode, the World War II one. Uh, the, the, the first the killing, the, the killing, killing game. game. Yeah. yeah, because I got to shoot World War II. My most, my favorite episodes were the ones where it wasn't on the ship or all on Deep Space Nine. It's when we got out of our normal environment because you got to do stuff that you couldn't normally do visually. And uh, it was just fun. I got to shoot on the back lot at Universal and uh, on European Street, which has been in a thousand movies. So uh, that was the kick. And it was fun to see people. Oh, and uh, Jerry Ryan was a torch singer in it. Jerry Ryan, she, she performed in musical comedy, musical theater when she was in school. And I knew this, that she was a singer. Um, the, the line producer on the show came to me and said, oh, we're having the pre-record session for uh, uh, Jerry's song. And we've got a singer to come in and pre-record. Uh, do you want to come to the session? I said, what? You're going to use another singer? instead of Jerry singing? I said, are you guys nuts? And she said, oh, okay, she's a singer. I said, yeah, she's a singer. <laughs> so she ended up singing the song and ended up being Brandon's girlfriend. So I guess, I guess I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, and my one of my favorite shots is the opening uh, where we introduce her coming off the piano player. And I did a, um, a 360 of the room and then, it was a huge Steadicam shot and it took all morning and everybody was freaking out how long it was taking, but it's one of my favorite shots. I got to do so much interesting visual things on that show. So that was really gratifying. And again, Jerry Ryan as a, a 40s torch singer in occupied France, what could be better than that? That was cool. And then I guess the third would be the visitor. David, Thank you so much. This yeah, this is, was fun. This has Thank been you. a blast. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I, you. Thank I, I just you. wish my memory was better, and I hope uh, that it was accurate. <laughs> I, uh, as someone who's interviewed well over a thousand people, I can assure you, your your memory is in the top one percent. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, all right, I got a signature closing line. You ready, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for listening. All drive systems are standing by. The Center Seat After Show is an Acellcast original and produced by Brian Volk-Weiss, Mary Jo Tenuto, John Tenuto, Brian Adams, Matt Gravitsky, and Richard Myrick. Thank you for listening.